Welcome to the Good Chemistry Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis. And first, as a reminder, my website, nickjacomis.com, N-I-C-K-J-I-K-O-M-E-S.com, is up. At the website, you can access both audio and video versions of the podcast. The audio version, the version you're listening to right now, has somewhat better sound quality, and the videos on the website are playable both on the website and on my YouTube page. My guest today is Dr. Katrin Preller. Katrin holds a PhD in neuro and clinical psychology from the University of Zurich. She is currently a junior group leader at the University of Zurich, as well as a visiting assistant professor at Yale. Her research has covered a variety of psychoactive drugs, ranging from psychedelics to MDMA to heroin and cocaine. A lot of her work involves neuroimaging, including looking at the effects of psychedelics on things like self-perception and social cognition. Ketrin and I discussed how psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin, as well as empathogens like MDMA, affect empathy and social cognition in the brain. And we talked about addiction and how those drugs differ from drugs of abuse like cocaine. As always, if you enjoy the content, please like, share, or download the episode, or rate us in the App Store. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Katrin Preller. Dr. Preller, thank you for joining me. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you. Where are you Where are you uh, sitting in today? I am sitting in my home office in Zurich right now. Uh, what time is it there? <laughs> it's uh, 6 p.m., so pretty late on a Friday evening. Okay, well, thank you very much for, for taking the time on a Friday. Can you start off by just telling everyone what you do and what your scientific background is? Yeah. So I'm a neuro and clinical psychologist by training. And um, after graduating from college, basically, I joined um, a research uh, department at the University of Zurich, where I did a lot of research on addiction. So um, looking at the long term consequences of drug use. Um, And after that, I switched gears a little bit to um, investigate the acute and long-term effects of psychedelics in healthy participants to gain a more mechanistic understanding of what exactly these substances do, as well as in clinical populations. Um, I've had I spent some time at UCL in London as well and at Yale University, and I'm now leading a small research lab at the University of Zurich where um, we're investigating the effects of psychedelic substances. And are there any particular psychedelic substances that you guys focus on? Most of our work has been done with psilocybin and LSD at the moment. Mm-hmm. And so these are classical psychedelics that people often talk about in the context of serotonin. So I thought maybe we could start out by just discussing serotonin a little bit and get people up to speed on the basic biology there. So broadly speaking, what is serotonin and what role does it play in the regulation of things like emotion, plasticity, and social behavior? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it won't be very easy to answer, to be honest, because serotonin plays such a big role in 
and some people say in everything and nothing at the same time. Um, but in general, um, serotonin itself is a neurotransmitter that is in everyone's brain. It's not only in the brain, um, but obviously in the, in the context of psychedelics, we're mainly looking at the brain. So um, in the brain, it regulates a lot of functions and they range from um, appetite and sleeping to um, other functions like emotional processing, etc. So it's, it's really involved in, in a lot of things. And it's a pretty complicated system because the effects of serotonin itself depend on which receptor they um, activate in the brain. So basically serotonin is just the transmitter, but it has to activate certain things, um, which are the receptors docking stations so that they will have an effect on you know emotion processing for example and there are several subtypes of this receptor and depending on where exactly um the serotonin acts in the brain and on what receptor the effects may be different and so where can you talk a little bit about the receptors and serotonin in terms of distribution in the brain is this a transmitter that's being used everywhere or in particular places it's um, pretty much everywhere in the brain. So um, obviously in some places, uh, the density of certain receptors is a bit higher than in others, but it's not like it's some kind of localized system. So really serotonin acts all over the brain. And people often talk about the serotonin 2A receptor when discussing psychedelics. So why, why is that? What is the 2A receptor specifically? Is that one localized at all? And what do we know about that receptor? So, well, first of all, when we're talking about psychedelics, um, usually they are substances which are not necessarily super specific for the serotonin receptor. So there are other receptors involved as well, but it's, most of them are rather specific to the, to the serotonin system, um, except for maybe LSD, which has a little bit of affinity to the dopamine system as well. But, and here comes the important part. Um, when we block the serotonin to a receptor system by, for example, um, giving people another drug first that blocks these types of receptors and then add LSD or psilocybin, um, the, the participants basically don't have any effects anymore. Hmm. And that tells us that um, the effects of psychedelics are highly de dependent specifically on the serotonin to a receptor. And with that receptor as well, it is, um, you can find it basically all over the brain. So um, it's not that, you know, we can point to one brain region and be like, yeah, this is where, uh, where psychedelics act, right? It's, it's really all over the brain. But again, in some areas with a little bit higher density than in others. I see. So the 2A receptor is really important for the action of classical psychedelics. Because if you give people another drug that blocks that receptor, and then you give them something like LSD, pretty much nothing happens. Exactly. So we've done exactly those kinds of experiments. Um, and I mean, if you're familiar with what LSD, for example, does, it's a highly altered state of consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. It's very different from your usual reality. But if you administer um, this other substance first, which blocks these receptors, um, then basically our participants couldn't distinguish between a placebo and, you know, this combination of this other substance plus LSD, even though, you know, they had ingested a medium dose of, of LSD, but there's really nothing happens. They don't feel any alterations at all. And I think that is pretty remarkable given 
that you know um, usually you have this really highly altered state of consciousness. So we need this specific receptor for the effects of psychedelics to take place. Hmm. And when you and, and your colleagues are administering LSD or psilocybin, what are the participants doing? Where are they? So all of our studies are conducted at the Psychiatric University Hospital in Zurich. Um, uh, so it is obviously a hospital environment, a medical environment, but we have, um, we have decorated the rooms in a way that is more a living room-like setting. So it's not, you know, the usual hospital atmosphere that you, you know, you encounter when you visit someone in a hospital. So we've really tried to make it as pleasant as possible. Um, but of course, um, when we are trying to find out what happens in the brain of our participants while they are uh, on the substance, then of course we need to do, you know, um, a little bit more technical measurements. And one of the things we do is, for example, fMRI. So we put people in a brain scanner and look at what exactly is happening in the brain while uh, or after they have been administered LSD or psilocybin. So obviously that is not necessarily a very living room like setting um, being in a brain scanner, but um, people tend to tolerate this really, really well. So um, when, when we started doing these types of experiments, we were worried in the beginning, you know, if people, you know, would feel comfortable in the scanner environment, but people usually really do. Um, and well, after we've done, you know, the measurements that we are interested in, then we take them back to the like living room, um, like setting. Um, that is of course a little bit different when we're talking about, um, about clinical studies, where it's really more about the therapeutic aspect instead of the mechanistic one. There, most of the measurements really take place in this living room like setting. So we're not exposing them to any kind of like EEG or fMRI experiments usually while they are on the substance. I see. Um, one more thing I wanted to discuss about serotonin is I think the, the typical person who hears serotonin, if they know anything about it, they probably associate it with mood and emotion because of SSRIs and how those are prescribed for anti anti-depression. So what, what exactly are SSRIs and how do they affect serotonin differently from something like LSD or psilocybin? Yeah. Um, so what SSRIs do is they inhibit the reuptake of uh, the serotonin that is naturally occurring in your brain. So basically, serotonin is floating around um, between two, you know, two neurons um, that need to communicate with each other. Um, and, you know, once they have been activating the receptors at the other side of or at the next neuron, what happens is that they that the serotonin usually gets um, re-uptaked in the first neuron where it gets broken down and then reassembled at one point. Um, and what uh, SSRIs do is they basically increase the level of serotonin, of the naturally occurring serotonin in your brain um, by making it stay longer in what we call the synaptic cleft, so between these two neurons, so they can activate the next neuron um, for a longer time period. Um, and the difference to psychedelics is that here we're not working with um, the serotonin that is occurring in your brain, but the psilocybin and LSD activate the receptor directly, first of all. Um, so, so basically they do the job that serotonin is usually doing. And the second difference is that 
of course, you know, then the serotonin you have in your brain that is just is just there. It will stimulate all types of serotonin receptors. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this before already. There are a lot of subtypes of these receptors. So um, it will just activate the whole serotonin system. However, um, as as um, seen in these previous experiments that we already talked about, is that psychedelics are really mainly focusing on this one specific receptor subtypes and not so much on the other. Gotcha. So an SSRI will essentially increase the total volume of serotonin present in the space between neurons. And that serotonin will then go activate all of the different types of serotonin receptors everywhere that it can. Whereas a psychedelic like LSD will act almost in place of serotonin, but in a much more biased way at a particular receptor. Exactly, exactly. So SSRIs are so common. I, I don't actually know how common they are. I just know that they are very common. Is there any interaction that an SSRI would have with a psychedelic, say? So if, if someone was taking prescription SSRIs and then, you know, in a social setting or otherwise, they took something like LSD or psilocybin, what would the potential interaction or effect be compared to someone who is not taking an SSRI? Um, that's a really good question, and I cannot at this point in time give you a really scientific answer to that. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why these experiments have not necessarily been performed yet is because um, people are worried that if you have too much serotonin, so SSRIs plus um, mm -hmm. a psychedelic could lead to basically you know, too much serotonin activation and this can cause what is called the serotonin syndrome which um you know is is really is um not particularly a nice state to be in and and could be dangerous so that's why um yeah well that's why these experiments have not necessarily been done quite yet However, if we look at anecdotal reports of people who are uh, on SSRIs and have tried a psychedelic, what, what they usually report is quite the opposite, actually, mm -hmm. that they have less effects than, um, than uh, par participants or, or people who don't take SSRIs. And the reason for that could be that by taking SSRIs um, chronically, so over a longer period of time for, uh, or every day, right, um, you change your serotonin system. So your, your serotonin system, the receptors are adaptive. So if you increase the, the level of serotonin, it might give, you might have a reaction that the receptors themselves um, internalize. So you have fewer receptors, mm -hmm. which could also be the case why um, if, you, if you don't have that many receptors anymore, um, the the psychedelic itself has less to stimulate. That's why mm -hmm. you might not feel the effects that strongly. Um, but again, this still needs to be tested in in, in scientific studies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about the adaptive or, or plastic capabilities of neurons. So with that in mind, what would happen? Uh, I'm guessing you don't give patients or participants LSD two days in a row. And can you comment on why that is? Um, so the reason for that is, well, I mean, so far there has not necessarily been a need to do that. And also people um, don't, I mean, psychedelics are a substance with very little abuse potential. And there's obviously a reason for that. 
because um, very few people would enjoy, you know, two days of tripping necessarily in a row, right? I mean, it's quite a ride. So it's really, it's really not something that people, if you've taken a psychedelic one day, you, you hardly want to do that exact same thing the next day. Mm -hmm. But there's also a biological reason for that, because um, this overstimulation of the serotonin system uh, leads to this, what, uh, what I said before, like internalization of the serotonin receptors. So um, you don't, you will have a much, um, or at least not as much of a strong effect if you take LSD or psilocybin for that matter the next day. Um, so, so you would just not feel the drug um, either at all or at least a lot less. Um, and you need at least a few days, like a week or maybe uh, 10 days for the system to get back in its normal state so you can actually feel the effects again. Mm -hmm. And that is also some kind of, you know, we on a biological level, that is another mechanism that prevents um, psychedelics from being, you know, abused on a daily basis, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And that's that's a normal response, right? This in receptor. So, so you take a drug, it could be a psychedelic, or it could be just some other prescription drug, say. And if it's stimulating a particular receptor a lot, that receptor will tend to go down. It'll be less frequent. But then it comes back in the absence of the drug. Is that accurate and normal? Um, that is in general accurate and normal. I mean, it depends a little bit on which receptor system you're stimulating, right? Um, so sometimes that happens a bit faster, sometimes that happens a bit slower. In the case of psychedelics and the serotonin 2A receptor, that happens pretty fast, um, which is also the reason why you don't, you know, there's no, no binge consumption of, mm -hmm. of these drugs usually. Um, whereas with other drugs, you know, the recovery is often much faster, which is also why you can basically take them um, more or less every day. Um, but in the long run, you will still need to increase the dose to get the same effects you had the first time you, you uh, used the substance. One of the other things that I noticed in your CV in terms of what you've looked at is you've looked at other drugs, including MDMA. You've looked at things like empathy and social cognition. So I thought maybe we could have a short discussion about those things and then maybe compare and contrast some different classes of drugs, something like MDMA, something like LSD, and then something like uh, cocaine or stimulants, say. So to start, what what is empathy? How do, how do you define it? And what are some of the important parts of the brain or brain networks that we know are important for empathy? Yeah. Um, so we usually tend to distinguish between two different kinds of empathy, um, co the cognitive and an emotional part. So the emotional part of empathy is really feeling with the other person. So you see that someone is suffering and that makes you suffer too. Um, or same, obviously, with happiness, right? So you see someone as being happy, um, which usually um, makes you happy too. So that is the emotional part. And the cognitive part, or also called theory of mind sometimes, is that you understand what exactly it is that the other person is feeling. So I see someone is smiling, which means I know that um, he or she is happy. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that I have to feel happy too, mm -hmm. but I know what this other person is feeling. So these are two different things we distinguish. Uh, usually um, they also, we can distinguish them on a neural basis as well. 
but there is they are they have highly overlapping networks and in general what we look at when we're talking about social cognition or empathy in the brain is usually the so-called um well yeah some people really call it the social brain and this includes a lot of the midline structures so the structures that we see um basically here in the in, between the two hemispheres or in the middle of these two hemispheres um as well as some more lateral parts like the temporal parietal junction for for example so these are like over here um but these are like the key areas we we look at um when we're when we're talking about um empathy and social cognition in general and is there any is there any interaction between serotonin 2a receptors and those parts of the brain or or these social capabilities Absolutely. So we've run quite a few tests with psychedelics and uh, social, uh, various social cognitive measures. Um, one empathy, for example. So what we've seen there is that uh, psilocybin acutely increases emotional empathy. So how much you feel with this other person. Um, we didn't see any changes in cognitive empathy, though. So it's not like they can name the the mo emotion that another person is feeling any better, but um, they tend to feel more with this uh, this other person. Um, we haven't done that in the MR scanner, so we don't know where exactly this originates from in the brain. But we've done other other uh, tests, which where we also gathered fMRI data, so where we can also localize. Um, where this effect is coming from, basically. Um, and one was uh, an experiment where we looked at exclusion or rejection processing. Um, because we also know that uh, a lot of psychiatric patients experience a lot of rejection, right? Mm -hmm. And um, on top of that, they also react more strongly to social rejection. Um, when we think about, for example, borderline personality disorder patients, they have a very strong reaction to social rejection. And there, what we've seen there is um, that psilocybin reduces this reaction towards social rejection. Um, so people are not, they are less emotional about being socially rejected. They are aware of it, but it just, um, it's, it's not that, emotionally important. And when we look at um, the fMRI data during this experiment, um, we see that we have less activation in what is called the anterior cingulate cortex, which is exactly one of those midline structures in the brain. So very much in very much in the middle of, um, of, of the brain between or at the border of the two hemispheres. Hmm. Yep. Most people probably haven't heard of the singlet cortex unless they're a neuroscientist or, or something. So can you talk a little bit about the singlet cortex? Let's be very concrete about where exactly it is and, and what do we know about it? Um, I know there's there's a lot that we could probably discuss, but what, what would you say are the basic facts about the, the singlet cortex and what it does? <laughs> yeah. So um, the singlet cortex is the area um, so if you imagine like you have your, your um, subcortical structures like the thalamus, et cetera, which are like very early structures where, for example, your sensory input um, is first processed in the brain. And then you have um, the corpus callosum, which is um, connecting the two hemispheres. So that is on top of that. And right above the corpus callosum, 
um, the first part of the cortex um, right above that in the middle of the brain, so where the two hemispheres meet, um, that is the cingulate cortex. And again, it's a pretty complicated brain structure because um, it's not, you know, we cannot associate it with one single thing that is being processed there. Um, a lot of research has focused on pain processing in general there. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a lot of uh, research that has associated the anterior cingulate cortex with conflict monitoring. So if you're um, if you're seeing something that is or, or processing something that is in conflict with your expectations, for example. Um, but also, and again, that is important for um, the experiment that we conducted for social rejection, which some people have also called social pain processing, um, which kind of led to this idea that because it's processed in overlapping areas that, you know, social rejection is basically the feeling, uh, a painful social feeling. Um, and uh, therefore, it kind of makes sense that it's processed in similar brain areas. And we know that um, if we do the same experiments that we conducted with psilocybin, if we do the same thing with, um, with, for example, borderline personality disorder patients, that we get an increased reaction in this anterior cingulate cortex in these patients. Hmm. Yeah, it sort of makes sense intuitively, I think, to, to most people who've studied or, or tried psychedelics people often describe describe the experience as almost childlike in its qualities and you know if you think about what a child is they're just they're a very emotionally reactive person <laughs> so they're very they're very sensitive and reactive both on the positive and the negative side yeah. so that that actually makes sense to me so you don't necessarily think about psychedelics as um increasing empathy or, or emotional processing first. I think most people probably think of them first for the sensory effects they have, but something like MDMA, that's really, I mean, people call it an empathogen, the, the empathy and the prosocial behavior effects that it has are, are really the primary thing that are associated with MDMA. So how does MDMA work in comparison to an SSRI and in comparison to something like LSD? Yeah. Um, so MDMA is, again, a very difficult drug because it does a lot of things. Um, in, in a way, it's a little bit closer to an SSRI than a psychedelics or classical psychedelics because it's not necessarily stimulating the receptors that much um, itself, um, but it's rather, it's rather releasing serotonin. Um, so the serotonin you, again, have in your brain already gets released into the synaptic cleft, so the, uh, the space between the neurons, um, and then can stimulate the, the neurons that are on the other side of the synaptic cleft. However, it is not only doing that to serotonin, but it's also doing that for dopamine and for norepinephrine, for example. So mm. it's a very complicated drug pharmacologically, um, but it's it's more of a releaser than stimulating the receptors themselves. It does that a little bit too, but um, much less than a classical psychedelic. So again, you know, a pretty different mechanism of of action here. And um, you're perfectly right. So the social aspects are definitely the ones that people look at when we're talking about MDMA because they are just so prominent, right? 
But um, we have done, you know, com not necessarily comparison studies, but um, I've written up a review paper where we compared the studies that have been conducted with MDMA on the social aspects um, and the studies that have been conducted with psilocybin and LSD. And what we see there when we compare these results is that um, the social or the, the increases in empathy and, and the changes in other aspects of social processing are actually pretty similar in MDMA and in, um, in classical psychedelics. So um, my interpretation here is that, well, maybe, you know, we just don't talk about the social effects of psychedelics that much because, you know, when people take them, um, the first thing they notice is obviously all these alterations in, you know, their visual system and, and the sensory system that, you know, somewhere underneath the whole social, uh, social changes and social perception happen, but they're just not as obvious um, because, you know, maybe they're just mm -hmm. because all this other thing is going on as well. And that is also a lot easier to describe, for example. Um, but yeah, when we look at the data, the um, the alterations in social processing are to a degree pretty similar um, to uh, to the ones of MDMA. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the flip side of that too is with MDMA, people focus so much on the the social and empathic behavioral effects that they sometimes overlook uh, the sensory effects. There definitely are sensory effects. I would say what. Um, what do we know, if anything, about that scientifically? Um, not so much, to my knowledge, right now, um, because usually people have, you know, alterations in sensory experiences, mostly at, at pretty high doses of MDMA. Um, and obviously, we need to make sure in the experience that we are conducting that, um, yeah, that that we keep our participants safe. So we. Mm -hmm tend to administer you know doses which are like in a moderate range right mm -hmm. um what has there is a bit of research on mdma and and social touch so how um that you, you that you perceive you know the 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 touch of another person in a different usually more pleasant way but um i'm not aware of much research going on on like visual effects of um mdma for example because you know they're just um not as reliably induced at least in low to moderate doses um mm. with mdma compared to for example psilocybin gotcha so something like lsd or psilocybin is directly stimulating certain serotonin receptors in the brain that's causing all of the psychedelic effects mdma is not doing that it's really dumping serotonin and other transmitters into the synaptic space more so you've sort of got more of these neurotransmitters um, in the brain doing stuff and so in that sense it's sort of like an ssri an ssri and mdma would put more serotonin into the synaptic space. So is there an, what's the interaction or the potential danger of having an SSRI in your system when you take MDMA? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and can basically only give you the same answer I gave you before um, that we, to, at, right now at least, we, we just don't know. I mean, there's always, you know, the, the problem that uh, with the serotonin syndrome, right? So mm -hmm. too much serotonin really is not good for you. Um, so it's probably not something that people should try, um, even more so with, um, with MDMA. 
um, it's 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 just probably not a good idea to kind of overload your serotonin system that much. But we we just don't know at this moment, right? Um, there will be. I'm I'm pretty sure there are some studies going on or will be going on in the near future, where um, we will have scientific data on that and where people are doing these experiments in a safe setting. I see. So when we think about the perceptual or sensory effects of psychedelics in particular, they're, they're very striking. So there's very strong sensory effects. People, you know, literally see stuff that isn't there or it's, or it's moving. So can you talk a little bit about the brain networks that underlie perception and what, well, what, how would you define perception as a neuroscientist and how would you maybe distinguish it from simpler sensory processing? Yeah, so perception for me, and I'm not entirely sure if that is, um, you know, a, a common um, a definition of that or if everyone would share this definition. But in general, you know, we don't usually experience just, you know, your visual input or just your auditory input but usually all these inputs that you receive from your environment as well as the ones you receive from your own body get integrated in one coherent perception um, and i think there is where where the difference is right you ha- you can have a visual stimulation and a visual percep- and a visual yeah processing but eventually you have um, one pretty broad picture of yourself and you know, the world around you, which is, um, which is, you know, put together from different senses, right? Um, and with psychedelics, obviously, something happens there. And um, there are multiple things that happen um, across the whole brain, not only in our, our sensory brain regions. But um, even before we get to the cortex, there is the thalamus, which I mentioned before briefly, and the thalamus is usually responsible to filter um, important from non-important information in in the world. So um, the world, as it, as it you know is presented to us, is not necessarily you know the reality because in reality, obviously, there are no colors, right? Um, they're just different wavelengths. Um, but um, not only that, we are largely ignoring a lot of stimuli, and that is good because um, this is the way we we can function in this highly complex world. Mm-hmm. Now, under the influence of a psychedelic, what we've seen there is that the thalamus seems to be losing its ability to really filter this information that we're receiving. And again, I'm talking not only about our environment, but also about the information that we receive from our own body. Um, So this seems to lead to um, more information being sent to our sensory brain region. So from the thalamus, this information gets um, to the primary sensory brain regions, and we have different ones for all of our senses, for our visual system, for example, this is in the occipital cortex, which is in the back of our brain. For our auditory system, this is, you know, on on the sides of our brain. And um, yeah, so we have more connectivity, more information flow to these sensory cortical brain areas. 
But of course, you know, as I said before, you need to integrate all these things into, you know, a coherent perception. Mm -hmm. And we see that these um, sensory brain regions, they are highly connected under the influence of a psychedelic to the rest of the brain. However, the brain areas which are supposed to make sense of the percepts that we have um, to integrate all this information that we are receiving from about the current state of the world, the current state about ourselves, as well as integrating that uh, these percepts with you know what we know about the world, these these brain areas are loosely connected um, to the rest of the brain. So our interpretation of that is that we have a sen a, a state of heightened sensory perception. But the integration of these, um, these sensory perceptions is different. So basically, we bring together this information differently than we usually would. Um, and that could explain, on the one hand, why we experience things like, you know, these illusions that you've been describing, but also why people, um, for example, say that, you know, psychedelics allow them to break out of, you know, their usual thinking patterns, why they allow them to see themselves in a new in a new way or see the world in a new light. Um, because the way we put information together seems to be different in, in a psychedelic state. Hmm. This reminds me of Aldous Huxley, who famously speculated about how the brain worked, basically, in the context of psychedelics. He described the brain as perhaps acting as a reducing valve, basically a, a giant filter. It's actually filtering out information mostly before it actually comes into our conscious awareness. And it sounds like you're, you're saying that something like that is, is actually happening. So on a psychedelic, there's at least two things happening, if, if I heard you correctly. One is relatively early parts of the information processing stream, like in the thalamus, are actually being relaxed. So you're filtering out less. There's actually more sensory information coming in and getting to the cortex. And then after that, the cortex itself, the association areas and the, the higher order areas are behaving differently. They're, they're stitching that stuff together differently. We can just say that. So, so there really does seem to be a, a filtering mechanism that is reduced when you're on a classical psychedelic. Yeah. So um, that is at least what the data tell us so far, right? I mean, it's it's obviously hard to test this in, mm -hmm. in humans directly. Mm -hmm. So we we have to, you know, find ways to work around that we cannot necessarily just stick electrodes in in the human's brain usually and and just you know watch the information flow. Um, so we're working with other techniques, um, like for example, connectivity measures in the brain. Um, and there we've seen exactly that. So we have um, a stronger connectivity between the thalamus and certain parts of the cortex. There are other paradigms that we use as well, um, where we can test how information is, is um, processed. And basically all of these different measures that we have applied during um, a psychedelic state point towards a reduced filtering mechanism in the brain. And then I would imagine, I mean, and anyone who's tried these things will know firsthand that the, the dose really matters. So a very high dose versus a medium dose versus a low dose are going to have extremely different effects in, in many cases. Right now, something that's very trendy, you, you can, you know, people are talking about this in magazines in the grocery store, uh, microdosing LSD. And, you know, it, it's really marketed, it's, it's really being marketed literally as 
uh, almost uh, a kind of stress ball or supplement you know, that you would take as part of your normal healthy living because it's going to make you supposedly more creative, a little bit more um, functional or whatever. So do we actually know anything about the effects of microdosing something like LSD? And are there any potential risks in doing something like that, even at a very tiny dose day after day after day? Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, we know very little. So there are various question marks around that. Um, but let's look at the safety issue first. Um, and again, you know, there are many unknowns, so I won't be able to, to answer that question really. But we also know that LSD is stimulating the serotonin 2B receptor. And there are a lot of those receptors involved in your cardiovascular system. Um, and we know that stimulating this receptor chronically, so over a long period of time, um, might have negative effects on your cardiovascular system. Now, obviously, we don't know if a microdose of, of LSD will be enough to, to induce any kind of adverse effects there. But it is an open question. So we have no scientific data on the safety of you know, a chronic application of, um, of psychedelics. So this is just something to keep in mind. You know, I'm not saying that it is necessarily dangerous, um, but it could theoretically be. So this is something we, we really need to keep in mind when we're talking about you know, daily administration of LSD, for example. Mm -hmm. um, I hope that there will be some safety data in, in the future, but right now we don't have them. Um, Coming back to the potential, um, the potential mechanisms or beneficial effects of a low dose of um, of LSD. Um, again, we don't we have very little data on that yet, and most of the studies that have been conducted are not looking at chronic administration, but they are just administering a low dose once and then look at the acute effects. And um, compared to a placebo we see relatively little effects, to be honest. So um, some studies have tried to do some like creativity tests and, and things like that, or concentration and um, things that people describe anecdotally. Mm -hmm. And we haven't been able to find that effect yet. I see. Um, it's probably very difficult to detect something like that anyway. It is. I mean, it's it's a bit harder or it's a bit easier to um, to test things like, you know, attention span or concentration and like these more cognitive measures, whereas obviously testing creativity is a much harder task to do in the lab. Right. Um, but yeah, in, in all these tests, um, we haven't we haven't seen a beneficial effect of a of a single dose of a, of, of LSD or single low dose of LSD. Um, now, that being said, when we looked at um, the brains of participants under the influence of low dose, we have seen changes in the connectivity between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And the amygdala is basically, um, if, to put it very simply, um, is like the emotional center of the brain. Um, and what we've seen there is that um, we, we, a low dose of LSD seems to change the interaction with the prefrontal cortex, which is kind of controlling this emotional response. And what that might mean is that someone who 
has some kind of issues with regulating emotion, for example, because they are in a slightly depressed state. Um, this could theoretically be helpful to, um, to normalize this change in emotion regulation. And obviously that probably, you know, getting rid of, you know, this, this um, you know, maybe not pathological, but kind of, you know, depressed state will obviously also make you, you know, more creative and might also make you, um, you know, may, make, makes it easier to focus on your work, etc. So there are mechanistic hints that a microdose of um, LSD might be helpful in people who are um, maybe not, you know, not performing at, you know, the level that they theoretically could because of some kind of underlying um, underlying problem like mild depression or something like that. Um, but there is not necessarily any evidence for now that, you know, someone who is already performing at an optimal level will gain a lot from a small dose of LSD. Again, that being said, um, there's way too little research at uh, this moment to be able to, you know, answer this question, really. Mm -hmm. How, so in your opinion, like right now, a very hot topic in the research world and also in the private sector is the potential therapeutic application of things like LSD or psilocybin. At a very high level, are you excited or optimistic that there will be some major positive outcomes there? Or, or do you think maybe things are being exaggerated somewhat? Well, um, so I do think that, you know, there's definitely a potential. So the studies we know and which are published right now um, definitely show that, uh, especially in addiction as well as in depression, people are getting better um, and and that you know and that is a that is super interesting that is super promising um, but the studies that have been conducted so far are often not necessarily well controlled and they have um, they just included a few patients so to be able to you know eventually determine whether we can use these substances as medication um, there are a lot more, um, a lot more questions that we need to answer. And first of all, we need to conduct well-controlled trials. We need to conduct trials with a lot more participants. We need to figure out what the best therapeutic approach is that uh, basically comes with the therapy, because um, usually psychedelics in a therapeutic setting are not just, you know, you don't just give it to the participant and then leave them alone and hope that they will magically get better. But it's usually embedded in some kind of psychotherapy. So we need to figure out what the best approach is to conduct this therapy that, you know, comes along with the psychedelic administration. And we need to figure out uh, who actually benefits from this treatment and who not. Um, because um, as it usually is in, in general in, in psychiatry and in therapy, it's, it's highly unlikely that, you know, this will be the magic bullet for everyone. Mm -hmm. There will be people who um, benefit from, from the experience and from the administration of the psychedelic, but there will be others who don't. 
And, um, you know, one of the major questions is to figure out, well, who are these people who respond well to this treatment and who, you know, might not be really um, or where shouldn't we administer that, that substance? So there are a lot of open questions that need to be answered, but the results that we have so far are very promising. So one thing that you've mentioned so far is that the effects of classical psychedelics like LSD depend, if not entirely, then in very large part on the 5-HT2A receptor alone. And another question that people have discussed in the literature and elsewhere is, well, to what extent can the therapeutic effects of psychedelics be dissociated from the psychedelic effects? Because on the one hand, um, some of these results with LSD and psilocybin are very striking. On the other hand, to put it to put it one way, it's very inconvenient that a doctor has to administer something and stay with the patient in the room for six or eight or ten hours. So it would certainly be nice if doctors could prescribe something and it doesn't last that long. It doesn't have hallucinations or very strong sensory effects that the patient you know, might have an adverse reaction to, let's say. So, but, but on the other hand, you, you've already told us that the, the major psychedelic effects depend very strongly on this one receptor. So do you have any thoughts or is there any data on how plausible it is that we can dissociate the psychedelic sensory and perceptual effects from the potential therapeutic effects? Yeah. Um, right now we can't um and this comes back to you know another open question when we when we're talking about you know using psychedelics as medication is um that we really don't know why exactly they have these beneficial effects mm -hmm. and i think we really need to answer this um we we're trying to do that in um, the clinical trials that we are currently running so on top of just looking at whether people get better or not we're also trying to find out why they get better. So what is it really that, you know, makes them makes them um, feel less depressed or um, reduces their drinking behavior um, after the administration of the substance? Um, and there are so many hypotheses out there which range from um, changes in the serotonin to A receptor system to um, changes in neuroplasticity um, to, you know, more biological factors like um, insight into dysfunctional behavior, social connectedness, etc. Um, so for the time being, it's really hard to dissociate these things, but we're trying to find out. And um, once we have clarified what exactly it is that helps people get better, then, and we know, for example, that it's the neuroplastic effects or it's the long-term changes in the receptor system, then, of course, if we know that it's, it's just that, that the, the actual experience itself doesn't have much of an impact, um, then we know it's, it's the biological factors, and then we maybe can also design something that is um, just targeting this specific mechanism of action. But for, for now, we just don't know. Mm -hmm. So we've discussed how not, not only that LSD and psilocybin have quite a low abuse potential, but they might actually turn out to be useful for treating addiction to other substances. So you've done some research on cocaine. That's a very different type of drug. So can you talk a little bit about, about cocaine? What is it? What kind of drug is it? How does it behave differently from MDMA and LSD, the things we've already talked about? And how does that inform why it has a very different abuse 
potential than those yeah. drugs. And so the main difference um, between psychedelics and almost all other um, drugs of abuse is um, that the that basically all drugs that you know will that have some kind of addiction potential act on the dopamine system. And this is the same for for cocaine. It's not, you know, it's not just the dopamine system. There is serotonin and norepinephrine and these things involved as well. But the main action is on the dopamine system. That's why you have very different effects. You're feeling, you know, very much awake. You're feeling like cognitively very sharp um, and things like that. But you don't go into necessarily an altered state of consciousness like um, like psychedelics usually induce. Um, but obviously due to its action on the, and very fast action on the dopamine system, it's much more addictive than, um, than classical psychedelics. I see. So, so it has to do with the relative difference in which neurotransmitter systems, the drugs are primarily acting on. Yes. Gotcha. So what, um, can you go into a little bit more? What what do we know? What studies have been done so far about classical psychedelics and addiction? What what sorts of addiction have people done pilot studies on, and and where where are we with that research? Um, so there are two studies published currently: one in alcohol use disorder and one in um, tobacco and nicotine addiction. Um, both of them, again, very low numbers of participants and um, and not not in a controlled setting, so meaning no comparison condition. Mm -hmm. um, but both of them have shown really, really nice results. So people drink a lot less. And um, in the nicotine addiction study, a lot of people stopped smoking. Um, I think it was um, 10 out of 12 participants or something like that, or 12 out of 15 who stopped smoking. And I mean, these are incredible numbers, right? We have no treatment that is comparable mm -hmm. um, to that. But of course, you know, the studies are, their first studies, they're basically feasibility studies. Um, again, not necessarily well-controlled. Um, and we need these larger trials and these well-controlled trials to confirm that. But these studies are currently underway. Um, so there, we and several other groups around the world are conducting these types of, of studies with a larger number of participants with a, a placebo or an active placebo control condition, um, which will help to, to find out if we can actually replicate the findings from these early studies. And um, it's also being extended to not only alcohol and nicotine. So as far as I know, there is one study um, being conducted for treating cocaine addiction, um, and another one for opioid use disorder. So um, we'll see if the, these early results generalize to other forms of addiction or to addiction to other substances as well, um, and whether you know we can replicate these early results. But again, you know the ones we have so far are really promising. Mm -hmm. And would that be would would it be unique in the pharmaceutical world for a drug to be able to treat? D different forms of drug addiction. My understanding is when you're treating addiction, there's typically, you know, maybe one treatment for nicotine, a different treatment for alcohol and so on and so forth. Is that the case? Yeah, that is indeed usually the case. Um, that being said, there for some for some forms of addiction, we don't even have really good pharmaceuticals to treat them. 
but in general, um, in general, yes. And this again comes back to the question: What exactly is the mechanism of action, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and for example, an alcohol use disorder um, or or in heroin addiction, what you do is basically block the um, block the receptors where the drug usually acts, so that you either don't have an effect when you um, when you use the drug again, or that you have an adverse effect when you use the drug again. Um, so that is obviously very specific to the drug of abuse. However, again, um, a big question is why would psychedelics be able to help um, all these types of addiction, which basically means that if that is true, um, that the mechanism of action is very different from the one which um, the, the pharmaceuticals which are currently used for the treatment of addiction are, are targeting, right? So if um, if we have if we think about something like for example um, neuroplasticity, right? That could be terribly helpful in um, in addicted patients because they need to kind of unlearn associations between mm-hmm. um, drug stimuli and their response or the brain's response to them. Um, and if you if you can if you can theoretically. Um, combine that with increased insight into dysfunctional behavior. And we could theoretically explain the long-lasting effects and why they, why psychedelics may act across different substance use disorders. Um, but again, we don't quite know yet what exactly the mechanism is. But or if, if we indeed see these positive effects across different substance use disorders, then it is probably something a lot more general than um, the pharmaceuticals which are currently used. Mm-hmm. So you're working and joining us right now from Zurich. Um, I'm curious what the drug regulation is like in Zurich compared to the United States. So one point of comparison that's sort of interesting or one of the ironies of drug re- regulation in the US and how it impacts research over here is, you know, for example, something like cocaine is actually less regulated in the United States than these other substances like LSD. So it's actually more difficult to do research on what is arguably the worst or at least the more addictive drug. And some of the medical benefits, um, because some of the medical benefits of cocaine are recognized, but but they're not formally recognized for something like LSD yet. So what is what does drug scheduling or drug regulation look like in Switzerland compared to the United States for these drugs? And can you comment on on which which version you think is more appropriate? Um, it's actually pretty similar, to be honest. Hmm. Um, so I won't be able to comment on which version is better because it's really it's it's um, it's very very similar. Hmm. But there is a difference, and the difference is that um, research with psychedelics um, has never completely stopped in Switzerland, and has um, and we've. So, so the lab I was working in has um, conducted or has conducted the first experiment with psilocybin in humans in, I think, 1996. So, and that is quite a while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, therefore, we we obviously know how to conduct these studies. We know how to get approval for them. Um, it's obviously a it's a very it's a strongly regulated space also in in Switzerland over here. But um, given this this long experience um, in in terms of you know 
us doing this type of research so we know what exactly we need to do to get approval but also on the other hand you know the regulatory authorities um are used to us conducting these studies and we have been you know doing this for 30 years and you can show that you know you are be you are able to do that in a very safe way obviously um create some mutual trust in these studies and that makes it a lot easier um, to conduct these studies over here because we don't have to figure out everything new, but we we have this long experience with how to conduct these studies. I see. So so the regulations are actually similar in Zurich. Does that how how does that impact the research you guys are doing? Does it take a long time to get approvals to work with these things? Yeah, it's it's actually yeah. Given the 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 um, the experience we have with these trials. Um, it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily take too long to get approval. Um, it just makes things very expensive. And mm. that obviously is an issue. So there is um, little funding for these types of studies from, you know, the usually usual funding bodies, which are usually governmental, where we, um, where we fund academic research. So it's it's hard to get um, it's hard to get money to do this research. And because it is scheduled, um, in its schedule one in the US as well as here, and um, that makes the research just a lot more expensive. So that is actually the thing that is difficult, not necessarily getting approval. I see. So can you talk a little bit about where your funding actually comes from? Is it coming from private sources? Yeah, a lot is coming from private sources. Um, so uh, private donations, etc. Um, there is the Hefter Research Institute, which is supporting um, studies with psychedelics, for example, that is also but rely is also relying on on private donations, of course. Um, we are lucky to be one of the few countries in the world, if not the only one, where we have actually obtained um, governmental funding to do studies in humans with psychedelics. And that is really unusual. Um, that is, is I, I don't think there are many countries in the world which, where, where that is possible. So we have, uh, we have a bit of governmental funding, um, but not enough to keep our research program running. I see. So how did you actually get interested in this stuff? I mean, you do this for a living. How, how, did, you, how did you get into that position? Yeah, so for me, I was so when I when I studied psychology and then moved on to doing my PhD, I was really so the questions I had were really to understand um, you know what happens in in our brain on a neurochemistry level that kind of makes us you know think the way we think, makes us feel the way we feel. So, what exactly what is the contribution of um, you know specific receptors or neurotransmitter systems? that you know makes this uh, makes our brain um so complex right um and yeah and obviously one way to study that is by challenging your brains your brain or changing your brain by um by drugs right um and that's what got me interested in this type of research in the first place and that's when I started doing the research on the long-term effects of um, of addictive substances. Um, and I think that was uh, that was very very educating, and it was a wonderful research project. But it could not necessarily answer the questions about you know what 
what you know exactly in the brain happens in a causal way like if you if you tweak you know this receptor system a little bit now what 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 does that mean right and um yeah during that time i learned about the research with psychedelics and i was like yeah wow this could actually you know it's a it's a safe way to put people in an in an altered state of consciousness so that you can causally investigate the the contribution of the serotonin to a receptor system to you know, very com complex proce processes like, you know, social cognition or emotion processing. Um, so my fascination for that was really driven by the scientific interest in the neurochemistry of the brain. And then um, obviously working with these substances and also thinking about their therapeutic potential um, is, you know, another thing that was highly fascinating for me that we might have something at our hands that is able to you know, help people where it has been so difficult to find treatment for them. Mm -hmm. And so remind me, your PhD was in neuroscience or psychology? Uh, neuropsychology. Is so it both actually? <laughs> okay. Okay. And then what did you study in college? So we, we actually have a lot of listeners that are around that age, it seems. And I do get questions uh, fairly often that are of the form, I'm interested in this area. I'm going to study in college and I have no idea what to study. Yeah. So I studied I studied psychology with um, a focus on neuropsychology and clinical psychology. Um, so that was basically my that is my path. Um, and then, you know, during my Ph.D. and, and later on as well, I focused um, maybe a little bit more on the neuroscience side of thinking things in terms of, you know, brain imaging and, and these these things. Um, I think there are multiple ways. If you if you want to conduct these types of research, there there are a lot of ways of how to do that, right? So our team is very interdisciplinary. So there are you know there there MDs of course, um, medical doctors, um, which is probably you know psychiatry is probably right now the easiest path to get there, but obviously a lot of psychologists as well. Um, there is a computer scientist, there, there are um, physicians, right? So there, there are multiple ways of um, how to enter the field and there's no right or wrong. But what I am trying to tell people is that, you know, they should think about what exactly it is they want to, they want to do, right? In terms of what are your questions? Why do you want to work with these substances? Like, do you want to work therapeutically? Mm -hmm. um, then maybe computer science is not necessarily the right way to to do that. Um, I mean, if you if you are more interested in in the philosophy of these, uh, you know, and on all the surroundings of that, I have um, quite a few friends who are philosophers and are also working in this field, right? Um, but it's really dependent on what exactly it is that fascinates you about that and. Then obviously also like where where are your general interests um, and then you know um, then develop these interests and develop the skills you need there and then you can you have the choice right so if you are a highly trained neuroimager then of course you can apply these skills to uh, psychedelics as well as to basically anything else right if you're a really good therapist then. You can work with psychedelics probably, um, but you, you know, obviously can also help patients without, um, without psychedelics and just, you know, do, do whatever therapy you're trained in. So 
I think the really important part is to get a, a skill set that you are good at. And um, if you're comfortable with that, then you can add psychedelics on top of that. So I would never recommend someone um, who's a therapist and who's not, you know, is not confident to treat um, a depressed patient um, that they should do that with the help of psychedelics, right? So psychedelics don't make your life easier. In that case, they might even make it a lot more complicated. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, get a good training in, in, in what you're interested in and then, you know, maybe then you can add the next layer of complexity to that by adding psychedelics. I see. So you guys mentioned that you were that you were doing some addiction related research. Can you speak to any other studies you have that are ongoing that you're particularly excited about or or maybe just areas of investigation that you think are uh, maybe the most important to explore next? Yeah. So um, as I said, we, we cannot run like 10 studies in parallel. Mm -hmm. So the, the ones which are running currently are um, the two clinical trials, um, psilocybin for the treatment of alcohol use disorder and psilocybin for, for the treatment of depression. And obviously what we're looking there is, um, you know, the, the efficacy of these substances. As, so are people doing better after the treatment? Um, but we are also trying to really understand why. So basically we have, you know, we do fMRI scans and various tests and various questionnaires with our participants before and after treatment, trying to figure out what exactly it is that makes, um, makes them better eventually, um, hopefully. And I think this is, uh, we won't be able to answer this question within one or two studies, right? Because there are so many hypotheses that we need to test um, why these substances could be beneficial, that we'll definitely need more work on doing that. And I think this is, you know, the big task for the future to find out um, what what the clinically beneficial mechanism of action is. Um, and there will definitely need more studies. And as I mentioned before, the other thing that I think we really should um, be looking at in the future is a is a way to test which therapeutic approach is best for treating um, treating patients. And the therapeutic approach itself might actually differ between you know, uh, substance use disorders and depression or other, uh, other illnesses. Um, it might even differ for you know, cocaine versus alcohol addiction. Mm -hmm. Like all these things are things that are unknowns for, for the time being. And I think um, if we want to develop these, these molecules into um, into into medication, then we should target these questions sooner than later. How common do you do you know off the top of your head how common things like alcohol use disorder and depression are globally right now? Oh, I don't know. I don't have the numbers on the top of my head, but they are very common. Yeah, and I, I imagine it's actually gotten worse in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, I don't think we have the numbers quite yet, but. Um, yeah, it's uh, in in these times, especially depression and substance use disorders, are yeah are probably rising. Yes. Well, Catherine, I don't want to take too much more of your time. Thank you for doing this. This is definitely the longest uh, or the furthest away geographically uh, I've done a podcast so far. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave people with on this general area? Um, well, maybe not necessarily final thoughts, but, you know, if there are any questions or anything, like, please don't hesitate to, to get in touch with me. Um, 
and and yeah i hope i can you know can, follow up if there are any questions how, how can people do that so the easiest way is um to is to contact me via twitter um so i do read the personal message messages there so and um, that's definitely the the easiest way but also if you you know just want to write an email um that that's absolutely possible as well all right well katrin preller thank you for your time and i look forward to getting this up for everyone thank you very much